0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out how artists across the country, including in BC, are working to pay tribute to one of Canada's most renowned painters and sculptors and using new tools such as artificial intelligence to bring the spirit of Jean-Paul Riopelle into the 21st century on what would have been his 100th birthday. We spent an hour digging into how conspiracy theories and those who espouse them are impacting our society these days. First, with the co-author of a new book called "Conspirituality: how new age conspiracy theories became a health threat. And with an investigative reporter who's taken a good look at who is behind the new rise in hatred targeting the LGBTQ plus community and the trans community in particular. But first, Manitoba is in mourning tonight after a horrific crash claimed the lives of 15 people and injured 10 others today. It happened as a small bus carrying seniors from the community of Dauphin on a day trip to a casino near the town of Carberry collided with a semi-trailer while crossing the Trans-Canada Highway. We speak with the mayor of Dauphin about the devastating impact on his community, and we look at what could have gone so tragically wrong.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben.
0: I mean, for everyone involved, for you two, I know... um, just a tough day.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, and, and now that we are a little more than nine hours removed uh, from when this happened just after noon or just before noon, I should say central time. It, you know, it's really starting to set in. And I know on this drive to Brandon where we will spend the night about 30 minutes west of Carberry. Uh, You have lots of time with your thoughts and and no doubt that's what's going on with all of the first responders, uh, all of the families involved, some of them still maybe wondering the fates of their loved ones like you said Uh, and then the hundreds and hundreds of people who had to drive by the scene of that crash. Some in the moments just after that when that uh, small bus was on fire in the ditch in the southbound portion of the Trans-Canada Highway and uh, others who had to drive by and, and witness tarps on the side of the road, uh, covering some of the deceased, uh, who were there for hours. It's, it's scenes that will be burned into the minds of thousands, no doubt for, for a long time to come.
0: Yeah. And you were there today too, right? I mean, just uh, the images from there, the devastation, the, the, the force of that collision is hard to describe.
1: It, yeah, it, it really is. And you did get a sense of, just how fast things must have happened um, when you did step on the scene. I mean, the tractor trailer that was traveling eastbound was kind of still partially in the intersection. The front end of it pointed towards the ditch, and you could see parts of the, the bull bar that's on a lot of those trucks laying on the roadway. And then about 150 metres further down the road to the east was that van in the ditch. And, I mean, when I got there about two hours after it, had all happened. It only, all, all that remained was just a blackened, charred, um, you know, kind of a skeleton of, of what used to be a bus. And um, debris, shoes, there were walkers, many items on the ground, uh, and then just a plethora of first responders trying to piece together what happened. The the most emergent part of the situation certainly already transpired by the time I arrived there, and and then uh, you could tell in the following hours leading up to about six, seven o'clock when things started to wrap up, it was really trying to piece together the story of what took place just before noon hour.
0: Just for listeners to understand, I was looking at it on, on Google Maps today, just sort of trying to get an idea of the lay of the land. And it looks like quite a straight crossing. There is a stop sign on the Highway 5 side, so presumably the bus would have had to have stopped before crossing the highway. Uh, and the visibility looks pretty decent, but who knows, right? You never know in these circumstances what would have happened in that situation. That's what investigators are trying to piece together.
1: Yeah, we, I mean, on our drive out there, we dealt with a a fairly clear day. We have been dealing with some wildfire smoke um, from northwestern Ontario, from some of our own wildfires in eastern Manitoba. And that wasn't as bad today as it had been a little bit earlier in the week. Um, This part of highway, number one, is one that I've traveled hundreds and hundreds of times in my time as a a young man growing up in Brandon, traveling to Winnipeg and now traveling home. And certainly a, a straight part of the highway, there are woodlands around that area, but not where that intersection is. I mean, you could, on a clear day, see for miles traveling down the number one in that part. And number five is about the same thing. It's, it's you know, straight 90-degree angles at that crossing. But it, uh, it is one of the few crossings between two major highways in Manitoba, Ben, where it's not controlled by lights, and there have been enough serious incidents along some of these other intersections that have prompted bigger security measures. All that uh, we have when you are driving down Highway 5, as this bus was, is uh, an oversized version of a stop sign. One of those ones that are three or four feet in diameter, and then a flashing light on top of it.
0: Right. I, I mean, for the what we know now, I think it's it's emerged today that this was a group of seniors heading to the casino, which is just outside of uh, just a little bit south of where they were. They were close to being getting to their final destination. Uh, it must for the community of Dauphin. And this isn't the first tragedy they've experienced this year, but what a devastating day.
1: Yeah, it's still hard to imagine. I know, you know, growing up in this area, you hear of an incident that Maybe seriously injured someone, but nobody died. And and that devastated a community for a time to maybe watch someone they knew and they loved recover from that and deal with the emotional scars and trying to comprehend that number 15. And then the 10 that are injured in hospital, maybe some of them still fighting for their lives on top of that. All the people who had to witness it, of course, the driver of the truck as well um it's it's really hard to you know to put into words and i'm sure everyone listening right now might be trying to do the same thing but um you know it's one of those things where you you see the visuals you hear the numbers and you you hope it never happens to a community like this because i know the impact will stretch far beyond carberry dauphin brandon winnipeg it uh, it will probably affect every corner of manitoba and stretch across the prairies like we saw in 2018 with the humble broncos
0: crash Right. The RCMP acknowledged the Humboldt Bronco crash today and the similarities. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we'll, we'll, that that all remains to be seen. But they've already spoken to and called in RCMP from Saskatchewan for some advice on this.
1: Yeah, they have. And, and, and you know, I wasn't there in 2018. Uh, my cameraman, Randall Paul, uh, did go up there with Global Winnipeg at the time. And uh, he was just telling me about some of the similarities between the two. I mean, they're both uncontrolled crossings and, and just utter devastation and, and the, the strew of debris and devastation it goes far beyond just an intersection i mean you know it looked like a bomb went off in the middle of highway five and highway one just everything everywhere and i know as we were just arriving on the scene um those those kind of images that everyone has burned in their mind i think of an aerial shot of the intersection where that Humboldt broncos crash took place and the at the debris from the tractor trailer thrown across the road uh it's kind of the same images that are burned into my mind right now with tarps on the side of the number one highway
0: yeah, I mean, I've I've covered stuff like that in the past. It's, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy for anyone.
1: No, and it's not easy to hear about. Um, you have no control in this, right? The You know, you're putting all your faith in the first responders if you're a family member of those 10 people. I mean, uh, what an incredibly difficult job um, for the medical examiners. We saw them doing their work around 6 p.m. central time, Uh, all of the vans used to transport the deceased. I mean, there are just so many people affected here, and uh, we won't know really the full range of it, maybe ever. But, uh, you know, that's the kind of story that that we need to tell moving forward, and and we'll definitely be doing so in the next couple of days.
0: Yeah, it was interesting to hear the RCMP, as always, you know, just tell people, be patient. We can't give you, we don't know what happened. We can't give you the answers yet.
1: Yeah, and, you know, an extraordinary circumstance, and, and one that we... Had never seen in Manitoba to this point. I'm, I'm sure this will go down as the the largest single casualty event on a Manitoba highway ever, with uh, 15 dead and, and hopefully no more added to that total in the days ahead. Um, there, we're pulling RCMP units from across Western Manitoba. STARS Air Ambulance was dispatched uh, both from Winnipeg and Regina and flying back to, uh, I believe, Health Sciences Centre in Winnipeg, which is Manitoba's largest trauma centre. My colleagues at 680 CJOB saw a fairly steady stream of those helicopters going back, coming back and landing at HSC's helipad. So, uh, I mean, the the amount of resources needed and, and will continue to be needed as our two hospitals did deal with the code orange in both here in Brandon, which is a much smaller community and a much smaller hospital. And it Health Sciences center and, and HSC just dealt with one of those incidents a couple of weeks ago as well. So, um, you know, just the, the sheer impact of, of this is is still hard to comprehend even nine hours later.
0: Yeah. Uh, Skylar, take care of yourself. Thank you so much for this. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Well, Manitoba is in mourning tonight. Canada is in mourning tonight. Perhaps no communities, certainly no communities in mourning as much as Dauphin, Manitoba. This bus that was hit on the uh, on Highway 5 in the Trans-Canada outside of Carberry this morning uh, was carrying a group of seniors from the town of Dauphin. Uh, Fifteen people have been killed. Ten have been injured. Uh, Dauphin's mayor, David Boziak, is with us now. Uh, I-, I can't really put my condolences in words, but there you have it.
2: Uh. Um, it's been a
0: tough day for uh,
2: folks here in town and and still continuing. I was just at the had established and there's still people waiting to hear um, some of the folks in the hospital identified and uh, so there's still a lot of unknowns, but um, I appreciate the sentiment
0: yeah tell me a bit about, about, about this group. This is uh, you know this is such a common thing when groups I remember my grandmother going on these trips. you know they'd get on a bus together and they'd go for a day trip somewhere together and you know it, it's usually it usually goes off without a hitch. They look forward to it this one though. Um, just you know I can't imagine the devastation to the community tonight. Everyone must know someone.
2: Well that, that's exactly it. Um, you know we're a small town about 8,500 people and about another 2,500 in the neighboring rural municipality. And um, to the best of my knowledge, um, the information that was shared with me today, that the majority of people were either from the town or um, the, the municipality. And um, as you had indicated, they were on a, a trip to a, a casino that's a couple hours away. And, uh, you know, again, weather was good and everybody was happy, I guess, when they got on and, and tragedy occurred. So, yeah, the town and our area is in shock right now and people are still trying to. You know, come to grips with it. So uh, it's a pretty challenging day for us. Uh,
0: You've mentioned that there are family members or people, who, well, relatives, still waiting for word. Right? They would have known that their relative was on that on that bus, but don't know what's happened right. to them. That's right, and
2: and and that's the that's the hard part because there are some people still in quite a great deal of anxiety. And also, um, I think you'd indicated earlier, a little bit earlier, that just about everybody in our community either knew someone or was related to someone that was on that bus. So that makes this uh, truly a, a community of event and um, a concern to all of us, and we're all feeling for each other.
0: Yeah, I know that the RCMP had mentioned earlier that there were services set up to try to help you out, try to help uh, the relatives out tonight. Uh, you said you were just there. Um, what else have you – What I mean, it's it's hard to know what to do in these situations. I suppose you just try to offer as much comfort and information as you can.
2: Uh, that's pretty much it. And and tonight was again to try and get as much information as the RCMP could to the families that were involved. And um they've been very helpful and cooperative with the city and our staff in trying to determine so what are our next steps? Um we've already reached out and and have had a response from the city of Humboldt and um getting some advice from, you know, their experiences with that tragedy at uh, 5 years ago or so and and so um you know, we've had um, other communities reaching out, the Association of Manitoba Municipalities um, has reached out to us, and the Mayor from the City of Winnipeg, other Mayors and Reeves from around the area and so, um, you know, it's kind of one of these things, you know, we're a small prairie community and, and everybody uh, knows everybody else and, and we're all connected, so the next couple of days um, as information um, comes out, um, we'll have a much better idea of, of what we can do as a city to help support these folks, But but for now, it's it's um, to try and comfort those people that are most directly affected as best we can, and then, um, you know, we'll see what tomorrow brings.
0: Uh, Mayor Boziak, this is not the first tragedy that's that's fallen on, on the community this year. I know there was that accident involving the teens. It's been a tough 2023 for, for such a small place. It has
2: been, and, and um, you know, it's a dark cloud uh, when these things happen, but the upside, um, you know, I, I hate to say it, but... And um, you, and that's what we're hoping for. um, Like after the crash in Gilbert Plains, where those involved, um, those you know, people, decided get together and pull together, and and I'm and I'm confident the same will happen um, once we you know get a little going into this. It's it's just a terrible situation, but to each together and. Uh, We'll get through it eventually, but it's a very difficult day for sure.
0: What now? I mean, I, I suppose that the hardest part is now. You have to. The families are waiting. You have services set up for them. Uh, what? What for you in the next twenty four hours, Mayor Bozier? Um, well, we're,
2: we're going to be at City Hall tomorrow, and and. Um an update tonight and, and I left the facility before it came in or was supposed to come in and it wasn't there yet so uh, tomorrow once we get a little bit more information um, we're going to be setting up uh, a couple of things in the community. Uh, You know, we're discussing uh, might we need to you know uh, identify a location where people may want to come together just to be together um, whether or not there are any um, formal ceremonies planned or whether families want to do things individually Those are all things that will still be discussed, Um, but the city has reached out um, to some of the service organizations. I know we had Prairie Mountain Health um, uh, people at the resource center tonight. The RCMP were there. Uh, There was uh, just a, a... you know a, a number of people just showing up bringing you know food and water and and so we're we're kind of preparing a little bit for that uh, we know that in talking briefly with the Humboldt folks today they said there was an outpouring of support for their community immediately following that event and so we're uh, trying to be prepared tomorrow for um, similar kinds of things, you know, obviously different circumstances, but, um, you know, we have a, a community that's that's grieving, and, you know, I, I heard this evening um, while I was at the resource center that um, families that as word was coming in on their loved ones, um, whether they were in the hospital Winnipeg or not, and I, I spoke to a couple of people that were um, busily um, gathering some things and heading into Winnipeg because um, they had received information that that um, their, um, their mother was in the hospital. So it's those kinds of things that as more information comes in, we'll we'll try and, um, uh, you know, address them as best we can.
0: Right. And I, I imagine that, that even though it's just words, that words of support that you've been hearing from right across the country tonight, uh, from across Manitoba, across the country, including places like Humboldt, must bring at least a small sliver of comfort to the community it's certainly
2: it's and i know that um a few of the other mayors
0: and and uh Reeves that have reached out
2: to me personally but um i know in one of the conversations i had you know they asked what what can we do or what should we do for you and i said if you know someone in our community or you know someone affected by this send them a message um, give them a call just let them know that you're thinking about them because you're absolutely correct that, and just knowing that there's other people caring for you um, doesn't make it any easier, but, it you know, it's, it, it's one of those small things that I think can can really help somebody in, in a very difficult time.
0: Well, Mayor Boziak, I think everyone's thoughts across the country are with you and the community of Dauphin tonight. Um, and, you know, Godspeed. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> Well, we've been in Manitoba this hour where uh, a province in mourning tonight it is af- absolutely a devastating day with that crash involving a minibus carrying 25 people, mostly seniors from the town of Dauphin on their way t- uh, to a casino south of Carberry for a day trip uh, when the bus was struck by a truck driving eastbound along the Trans-Canada Highway the, the bus had been coming southbound on a highway five this is one of an area where these two highways cross there's only a stop sign for the traffic traveling southbound on and traveling along highway five as it crosses the trans canada uh around carberry and somehow it made it across the westbound lanes and then as it moved into the eastbound lanes uh there was a collision with this truck that was absolutely devastating uh tonight 10 people are still in hospital 15 people have been confirmed dead um and you know investigators are still trying to figure out what went wrong the conditions according to uh reporters were there we looked at it the conditions were pretty clear it's a pretty visible place there's a lot of you know the uh, the sight lines seem pretty good but that is all stuff uh that will be figured out by crash investigators now Uh, clearly this has brought up memories of the humboldt bus crash back in april of 2018 for many um, when 16 players and, and staff with the Humboldt Broncos were killed, 13 injured, uh, when, when they were uh, hit by a truck that had gone through a stop sign near Armley, Saskatchewan. Uh, and of course, not only of the RCMP, not only has the mayor of uh, Dauphin been in touch with uh, people, officials in Humboldt for some advice on just what to do when this sort of tragedy, this kind of unspeakable tragedy hits your community. The RCMP, as well, have been in touch with their counterparts in Saskatchewan for some help on how to investigate. Have a listen.
3: This incident does have echoes of the tragic
0: collision that happened in Humboldt, Saskatchewan, and we are very much aware of that. We have already linked into the investigators in Saskatchewan who have first-hand experience and were some of the primary investigators in the investigation into the Humboldt crash. Alex Krizzle is with us now. He's an associate professor, director of the Driving Simulation Laboratory at, at uh, and director of biostatistics and the epidemiology programs at the University of Saskatchewan. Alex, thanks so much. Hi, right, thank you so much for having me. This one, I mean, the moment I saw the circumstances and looked at where it had happened, it immediately brought back memories of what happened um, five years ago, just a little more than five years ago now. Uh, This idea of these areas, there are so many of them across this country, but this idea of major highways crossing each other, um, it's, it's, you know, here we are again. We don't know the circumstances tonight, obviously.
4: Yeah, I mean, we don't know the circumstances and there's there's certainly a similarity um, with the Humboldt accident just in terms of the magnitude of the crash. And, um, you know, I, I I think there's there's still a lot to learn about, you know, what exactly happened. Um, and, you know, I think there's some lessons learned here, maybe in terms of how we need to, to revise these intersections to make them more safe to cross, um, because we, we definitely want to be avoiding not just these these. Massive accidents where there's a you know a tragic loss of many lives, but um, there's there's many single vehicle accidents that also result in a loss of life because of the design of these intersections and how difficult they are to cross.
0: Yeah, I mean, where where to begin with an investigation like this? I know this is not your necessarily your forte uh, completely, but but uh, you know clearly there'll be elements that investigators are trying to determine. Um, about the circumstance with which this happened. I mean, it happened right in the middle of the day. Um, it looked like visibility was decent, but again, you have this, this intersection where, a, where a bus is crossing right across the trans Canada highway, uh, obviously starting from a dead stop to try to get across a highway to the other side.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's hard to tell, but I mean, you, you have, have a truck that's going full speed eastbound and there's, there's no requirement for that truck to stop. And so, this bus has to navigate first the westbound traffic and then is is hypothetically stuck in this island and you know then has to make a decision as to, to when to continue onwards. And you know I, I think what will happen first is obviously they'll look at the drivers because I believe they're both um, you know still alive although they're, mm-hmm. they're injured and they'll look to see you know whether there's any impairment. Uh, that'll be the first step and pending no impairment, they'll start to look at their qualifications do they have a valid license? And they'll start to ask them about the circumstances around what happened, just getting a better sense of, of, of what they saw and and, and um, just their viewpoints in terms of you know those seconds that you know led up to that accident. And of course then you have the the accident reconstruction team that are gonna be looking at you know, the skid marks, was there a hard break, how fast were they driving, Um, what was the trajectory of of kind of the impact Um, to kind of get a better sense really, like looking at, you know, if the vehicles were speeding, whether it was a decision error perhaps because we see no skid marks, you know, that there's not a drastic um, press of the accelerator or a a drastic press of the brake. So it it could be just, you know, a a driver error in that instance where maybe they misjudged a gap or misjudged the, the speed of the truck coming forward.
0: Yeah, it, it was interesting today. The RCMP, of course, this is going to be very slow going. They were, they had to point out that this there is still the possibility that this is a criminal investigation. We don't know, obviously, if anyone was to blame here. But uh, this is going to be slow going, one assumes, because they do have to be mindful of the fact that this could be a criminal investigation.
4: Absolutely. And, and that's where they're looking at you know, whether someone was impaired or not. Um, because that would then be a, a criminal offence if they were impaired in driving and, of course, causing such a massive accident. And of course, too, lot, if they were driving yeah. without a valid license. You know, if if a bus driver didn't have a valid bus license or a van license, um, mm-hmm. you know, that would be another issue as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, you did a lot of work. I mean, clearly, we remember the circumstances of the Humboldt crash. The driver blew through that stop sign. He didn't have a lot of training. It led to a lot of calls. I remember seeing your name a lot back then about sort of needing to tighten up some of these rules around training. And that, uh, in some cases, has been done, but but not not entirely.
4: There's still more work to do. Um, there's definitely been a push in the right direction in terms of ensuring the truck drivers have appropriate training, but also better training. Um, there's there's still some issues in terms of um, um, auditing the truck driver training programs. Um, but again, I think there's been a big movement towards you know ensuring that the truckers have you know more experience and more awareness. Of how to operate a truck, and you know, in the Humboldt accent, it was clear that that driver just did not have the necessary experience to you know successfully operate that truck in a manner in which it should be operated.
0: Yeah, and you I mean you did a lot of interviews with a lot of truckers after the fact too, to try to get a better idea of what their conditions were like, and you found out, of course, that it was you know it's a grueling job. There's a lot of sleeplessness and so on. Uh, it's tough for them. Uh, but these at-grade separations, I mean, here you are driving down the Trans-Canada Highway, uh, you know, long distances, and there are these different areas where the road becomes more precarious for everyone involved. Uh, we talked about it a bit earlier, but these at-grade separations must must be a challenge for, for, driver, for truck drivers driving that much weight at that speed along a highway where you don't know if something's going to pop out in front of you.
4: Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it, it's very hard to stop a truck that's going 100 kilometers, you know, an hour that has, you know, a, a ton of weight behind it. It's, it's not something where they can just stop immediately and they're going to break. It's, it's going to take them hundreds of feet <laughs> to break at that speed and at that weight. Um, so, you know, even if that truck driver noticed the van coming out, there probably wasn't enough time for that truck to appropriately break and stop. Um, And, of course, too, if, you know, I don't know, again, the the circumstance, you know, how long was that truck driver driving? Did he get enough sleep? Um, You know, what was his electronic log books? Um, So those are things that the investigators will look at, too. You know, it's it's completely possible when you're driving on these monotonous routes that, you know, because they're so boring and, you know, it's it's so open, you know, you're not going to be at the peak of your awareness, potentially. Um, So, again, there's all sorts of factors that could play into this. but you know, irrespective of whether, you know, this person might have been tired or not, um, there's, you know, it's still unlikely that they would have had enough time to fully break and avoid the van, especially at that speed.
0: I guess just with the way Canada is laid out in this same situation in the U.S., these act-grade uh, separations, uh, you know, there's just not enough. Uh, the, the, the money isn't there, I suppose, to fix all of these, these act-grade intersections, I should say, um, across the country. But But needless to say, we should be identifying the dangerous ones we don't know i don't know much about the history of this particular one although uh Skylar peters who was with us at the beginning of the show who's a reporter there who's driven up and down this highway a uh, stretch of highway countless countless times say, says it's really one of the only places where two highways intersect like this yeah
4: yeah and there are two main highways too right. and i mean coming southbound or northbound on the five you I know mean, you have is a stop sign and otherwise it's the the driver's judgment you know, in terms of crossing into the median to get onto, you know, to cross the next set of lanes. Right. And, um, you know, there's, there's nothing really there to really support drivers, you know, if, if, if you know, they do have problems with reaction time or, um, if, you know, there, there could be something else put in place uh, maybe to help guide them across. Uh, a little bit better. Um, we haven't seen too much of those types of designs, um, but we there are some, you know, in the States that actually have um, a median that is is more structured that actually helps the cars cross. Uh, and maybe that's something we might want to think about implementing here.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I was listening to a clip earlier from BC Trucking Association, Association President Dave uh, Earle, who was talking about how a lot of drivers, if they don't have a lot of experience along a highway like that, may not be used to the fact that this is going on in front of them. I mean, again, it's, it's, there's so many questions left to be answered. It's, it's not worth talking about what might have went wrong. But when you look at the intersection, you certainly get a hint as to what could have, could have happened regardless of who, if anyone was to blame.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, it, it's, again, it could be an unfamiliar route, even though the, you know, the highway is fairly straight for this trucker. Um, you know, again, it's really hard to tell, you know, what that van was doing um, as they crossed the, the westbound lanes. Um, yeah. You know, was that, you know, van going at a higher speed? Did they not break in time? Um, you know, was the truck merging into another lane as the van was, you know, going across? I mean, there's all sorts of things that, you um, you know, we just don't know that I think, you know, to make a judgment on how this happened is, is still, you know, premature. But um, there, there's definitely a lot of factors that will have to be considered and, and ruled out to, to arrive at a cause.
0: Yeah, Humboldt led to some to some positive changes despite the incredible tragedy of that day. And hopefully uh, once we understand what happened here, and it may take a while, it will do the same. Alex, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I don't know if you've seen images of these things lately, because I've seen them on social media quite a bit, sort of really hostile groups of people, often carrying Canadian flags and some sort of denigration of the Prime Minister Trudeau, showing up at like school board meetings to yell at people, to yell at kids, to yell at other parents, normally about trans issues. And it seems absolutely bonkers to me. I have no idea. You know, I don't follow it closely enough. I think, where did this come from? Why are all these people acting like complete zealots uh, at these meetings? And then recently, this story emerges from Kelowna, BC, that seems to encapsulate The whole madness. The mother of a nine-year-old girl whose gender was questioned during a school track meet in Kelowna last week, nine years old, nine years old, someone was questioning her gender, says her daughter was shaken by the confrontation. Heidi Starr says the man accused the girl of being transgender and demanded proof that she was born female. She was about to take part in the girl's shot put event. Have a listen.
2: It was particularly impactful for her because she'd never she just never seen the hate and it was directed right at her ever since then my daughter has received nothing but just overwhelming love and support from all over the continent really and so we've we've been sharing those messages of love and support with her and i really feel like it has made an an incredible difference in how she's able to process the event
0: uh, the man in question denies that this is what happened. He has, in fact, been banned from school district property. And the incident has received, as a mom was mentioning, national and international attention, becomes, because it comes at a time when experts say a slate of recent high-profile anti-LGBTQ incidents is part of a long-standing pattern of pushback. Uh, this is a professor at Simon Fraser University, Travers, says that marginalized people get more recognition. As they do, there's a backlash from people against them.
4: Hatred and fear of people who do not conform to heteropatriarchal gender norms is pervasive. And, you know, certainly there's a lot more room has emerged for gender expression, etc. And for some people, this is promoting profound anxiety
0: Indeed. Um, He says that a lot of the fear mongering is based on misinformation. So people should educate themselves by using reputable sources. Um, Part of what we're seeing is groups targeting all age drag shows in several Ontario cities. And my next guest has dug into this issue quite significantly. Uh, One of his articles was called From Vaccines to Drag Queens, How the Freedom Movement is Targeting the Queer Community with False Claims of Grooming Children. And Grant LaFleche, who's an investigative reporter at the Hamilton Spectator, joins me now. Grant, thanks so much for your time tonight on this. Well, thanks for having me on, Ben. I appreciate it. You know, I, I've been really, uh, sometimes you feel kind of out of it. You know, you've been seeing these videos emerge on, on social media, and it's the anger that just floors you, the, the, the kind of vitriol that's being expressed here. Uh, what's going on? It feels like it's an organized camp. It looks like an organized campaign.
5: Well, it looks like an organized campaign because it, you know, mostly is an organized campaign. Uh, and I can understand why people would feel like it's kind of come out of the blue right? Like they were, people saw the occupation in Ottawa. They, they probably seen, you know, anti-vax or anti-mandate protests in their communities and in different places around the country, but they never saw anything quite like this where one group of identifiable people has become the target of their wrath. And this has been something that's been evolving in North America, not just in Canada. In some ways, it's actually an American import, That goes back to QAnon and Pizzagate and this general theme in the conspiracy theory community that they have to mobilize themselves to protect kids, in quotation, against some horrible uh, cabal that's out there that seeks to harm everybody's kids. And in part, what's happened is that narrative has now zeroed in on the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community in general, but the trans community in specific. And that's why you're seeing them now target them. This is something that's been building for a long time. This bullseye has been getting narrower and narrower. And it's being fueled by political interests on the far right. It's being fueled by some churches. It's being fueled by you know people who are upset with things like gay marriage, You know, that's just a non-issue anymore. So they've shifted their wrath to uh, an even more smaller and more vulnerable, vulnerable group, that being the trans community. And they whip themselves up into a kind of frenzy with these fake claims that trans people and drag performers and school boards and so on are trying to, quote unquote, groom their children for sexual abuse. And none of it is actually happening But in their online networks, they've reached a point where they just seem to believe it's true and they just feed each other these narratives and they're getting angrier and more hostile as they
0: do. You dug into who was behind it. I mean, and you've been to these sorts of these sorts of. I don't. I, want, I was going to use the word events, but that's just not the right word. Um, incident, what is the atmosphere like? Yeah, what is the atmosphere like? Because it feels you can almost feel the and this incident in Kelowna recently. I mean, the idea that someone would would sort of yell at a nine year old. I mean, it's beyond unhinged.
5: There, if you haven't been I mean if you were in Ottawa during the occupation, you certainly would have a taste for just how vitriolic it gets, um, but the the rage that 's being directed at people who have done no one any harm, uh, it, it does take you aback at first, and the the unreality of it, the parallel reality that they appear to be living in, uh, can be quite shocking. Because the things they're saying just don't match up with what's happening in the real world, but that doesn't seem to stop them. Um, in, in the investigation that we did at the Spectator, one of the things that we found was that the organizers of these pro these anti trans anti drag protests are the same people who were leading local uh, events held by the so called Freedom Convoy during the height of during the height of the pandemic when. We were still dealing with vaccine mandates and there was big push on to get as many people vaccinated against COVID-19 as possible. And as the pandemic itself and as the risk from COVID began to fade a little bit, uh, they shifted, they they just kept going and they shifted their gears from vaccines to, to drag queens. They're the same people. They're carrying the same message. It's the same grifters selling the same merchandise at these events. It's just a way to – in some ways, it seems like it may be a way for them to keep their community together and active, and they've found a target that they can demonize and dehumanize um, out in public. I mean, part of this, Ben, is that you've seen it out west in in the prairies just like you've seen it in Ontario, which is these Mm -hmm. near historic levels of hate crime uh, that are being reported by the the police uh, through Statistics Canada – Um, And that's because in some measure, hatred has become part of the public square. It's on our social media every single day. It's on Twitter. It's on Facebook. It's on Telegram. It's in our politics. Uh, I mean, the the PPC is a party that thrives on spreading some of this stuff. So the people who are at these events, a lot of them feel like they're having a moment and that they have a license to do this. Because there's very little in the way of opposition to stop them, even though you, you now see counter-protests starting to emerge uh, to, to oppose them on the street. But that also appears to be just dialing up the heat every time one of
0: these um, protests happens. Where are the police in all this?
5: Well, I mean, the, the police are there to sort of keep – when there's, a say, a protest and a counter-protest, you got the anti trans On one side, you've got the the supporters of of LGBTQ rights. uh, On the other, the cops will sometimes try to get in the middle. They'll arrest people on either side if there is, um, you know, a violent incident. But in in investigations that we've been doing very recently, and I should caveat this by saying this is only I'm only speaking now of the Ontario context. I haven't looked at data in you know, say Alberta, Saskatchewan, or something. But in Ontario, and I suspect very strongly, this is the same all over the country even though the number of um, times police will investigate a hate crime has gone through the roof, the number of times they're reporting incidents of hate incidents has gone through the roof, there are very, very few charges laid under Canada's hate crime legislation. And uh, there's almost no convictions. So, you know, it's less than 1% of all hate crimes result in an actual criminal conviction in the courts. And there's all kinds of complicated reasons to what's going on there. But one of the big ones is, Police aren't laying charges because they're not sure the charges will stick, because crown attorneys are unwilling to test our hate crime legislation in the courts. So as a right. consequence, police will for, just as a really quick for instance, if they say a I don't know a swastika sprayed on the side of a Jewish home, that doesn't automatically mean that the the vandal is going to get charged with a hate crime, even though to you and I that seems very transparent. The police might say, well. There's no, we don't know the motive of the vandal, so maybe they don't know what a swastika means. And so the person might get charged with mischief, but they might not get charged with a hate crime. And so when you ask where are the police in this, they're, they're, it's, they're just kind of there, but they're not really attacking the core of the problem when it reaches the level of criminality.
0: Um, Grant, you you, you talked to those who've been the targets here, and I, I'm curious to know, I mean, I think for a long time these sort of, you know, um, drag reading shows at libraries, when, you know, people paid no attention you know you brought your kids if you wanted to you didn't if you didn't and they kind of went unnoticed and all of a sudden I get the impression and I was reading uh, some of your articles that there's been I mean you know folks are getting targeted in a way that they couldn't possibly imagine and I'm trying to try to picture what the impact would be
5: if it, yeah I, and again it, it sort of feels like it came out of nowhere but this has been building for some time but you're right there, Dragtime time story hour at local libraries and, and occasionally at schools has been going on for a long time. Uh, it didn't raise a concern for anyone, but as this conspiracy theory community grew and as they're being uh, egged on, uh, as they're being egged on by political interests, you know, to, to sort of be more active and as they're finding the fact that they can repurpose old school, homophobia from, you know, say the 1950s and just repackage it to target uh, drag queens and they can keep their community active and in the public eye. uh, Suddenly these drag time story shows uh, started to become their targets. I mean, one of the one of the places that I uh, covered was an incident in Brockville, Ontario, where it was at a library. Incidentally, it it was a drag king, meaning it was a, a woman. Uh, presenting as a man in, in her drag uh, outfit. Not that the performers out, or the protesters outside seems to be able to know the difference between a drag king and a, and a drag queen. Right. But that protest got so heated that there were bomb threats called into the library and somebody climbed up on top of the library to attempt to set it on fire whilst the uh, story time for little kids who are there with their parents uh, was going on. So, I mean, the, the impact is, is sort of, it happens in, in several levels. You get just the, the idea that they're there, they're loud, they're making a nuisance of themselves, and they can make it very uncomfortable, this, which is their aim, for the performers, for the parents and the kids to even go inside, requiring the police and, and private security uh, to assist and protect them. In some cases, drag performers have actually lost work. I talked to one drag performer who was a subject, of she was doing a show uh, at a Boston Pizza in Hamilton, and uh, a protest started outside. It got pretty heated. The, a wall of, of Hamilton police officers were there to keep the protesters and counter-protesters apart. And that performer ended up losing work. It, 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 they, she wasn't called to other places, uh, or she had bookings that were canceled because these protests kept showing up. So it, it has an emotional impact, uh, it, you know, making people feel very unsafe. It has a financial impact as it's impacting the living of these performers. Uh, And it it just raises that level of incivility in society that we're just seeing day after day after day. And and this is sort of the, the tip of the spear.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't leave you a lot of time to answer the, the difficult question, just about uh, 90 seconds. But what can we do, at least in the short term? Because, you know, I understand people have freedom of speech and people have a right to their own opinions. At the same time, they don't have a right to hate. And, we, you know, the, the, the LGBTQ community fought for years to, be, to to avoid situations or to not have to endure situations like this. And here we are normalizing, or at least a group of people are normalizing this kind of hate again. I mean, very
5: quickly, there, people we've spoken to have offered some solutions. Um, some of it is just education, you know, especially at, at school at younger age to be able to, to to teach what we would now call anti-racism to young kids so that they, they don't grow up already with with notions that somebody who's different than them is deserving of hate, harassment, abuse and, and threat. In, in really extreme cases, um, we need de-radicalization counseling and therapy for people who have gone so far down that rabbit hole that they've put their own liberty in danger because they might be going to jail or their personal lives crumble because people have run away from them because of their hatred is, is so vitriolic. And then third, you know, we need funding and support from the political class to assist those agencies that are working to help these communities, including, you know, groups like the YWCA and in many communities Will help uh, you know the queer community and the trans community by creating safe spaces for them, or create support networks for them so that they can have places to turn, and and to not allow our politicians, generally the public, that is, to sort of glom onto this for the sake of achieving political power. There are politicians we're seeing it out in the Maritimes right now, and in, in, mm-hmm. in I think it's in Nova Scotia, uh, politicians to it, yeah. trying to latch onto this to win power. So I mean, those are it, it, that's a very compressed way to say it, but there are things that Canadians can and should be doing at this point.
0: Grant LaFleche, thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Uh, this is sort of a parallel issue, and it's an interesting one. Uh, it may not come as a huge surprise to you if you spent time on social media, but a new survey suggests confidence in the scientific community declined amongst American adults last year. Associated Press correspondent Maddie Burikoff says the survey shows confidence in science fell as the political divide continued?
6: During the pandemic, the overall level has been pretty stable. But in this latest survey, we saw a drop in confidence, bigger drop in science, but also a drop in medicine. And that was mainly driven by Republicans having really low levels of confidence in both of these topics.
0: There you go. But what is driving some of that distrust may surprise you. Uh, While it makes sense, we've seen populists and politicians exploiting healthcare anxieties out there, both here and in the US, the New Age wellness community has also found common cause with some of those conspiracy theorists. My next guest co-hosts a podcast called Conspirituality, which looks at the convergence between New Age wellness movements and far right-wing conspiracy theories, a convergence that flourished during the pandemic. And freelance journalist and cult researcher Matthew Remsky has now co-authored a book called Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat. And he joins me now. Matthew, thanks for your time tonight.
3: Thank you for having me, Ben.
0: This is a really interesting topic because I think we've all watched uh, those who aren't really too invested in either side of this, the conspiracies or the spirituality, have sort of watched these two worlds converge in a strange way.
3: The title kind of says it all. What is Conspirituality? Well, it's a mainly online social movement where conspiracy theories and spirituality, especially the New Age type, although sometimes Catholics and evangelicals and even Orthodox Jews can sometimes get on board, uh, get shaken together in a real cocktail of cultic dynamics, pseudoscience, and sometimes right-wing extremism. And people wrapped up in it are really convinced that Terrible things are happening in the world perpetrated by evil elites. So there's a very sort of basic conspiratorial paranoid mindset. But they also believe that becoming aware of this corruption is part of a spiritual awakening that will heal the world. And so they want to accelerate that process through meditation, taking supplements, refusing vaccines, also listening to angel channelers. And it tends to track towards the right politically because it believes that all human institutions, government, education, medicine, journalism, block true spiritual growth.
0: I mean, I'm all for individual people being able to believe what they want to want to believe. But but how does it how does it attracts so many people i there must be i mean clearly we're living in insecure times the pandemic was a very insecure time so i can understand people going out and searching for something that looks like stability and truth and you know and a little bit of a self self determination so to speak but uh this feels like it's a lot to swallow for someone who didn't believe in any of it to begin with
3: well, I think it, you're right to bring up the pandemic and, you know, moments of social stress. What we saw particularly, and this is where our book is rooted, is that, you know, when COVID shuttered businesses, that included the alternative health industry, yoga studios, massage clinics, chiropractic offices all were closed. And that put just a ton of alternative health practitioners Online competing for eyeballs. And, you know, the virus was making everybody tense, but so was this new kind of twisted interpretation of reality that actually suits the economy of alternative health, that the problem is your immune system or your spiritual outlook on life. Uh, And that's paired with this promise of, oh, well, we have you know, herbs and supplements and astrology readings that will help keep you safe. And of course, all of that also is appealing to people's disillusionment with clinical medicine, with confusing mixed messages from public health officials. uh, Should I wear masks? Should I not wear masks? How are these vaccines being developed? But as the wellness influencers that we track, they pivot towards this online marketplace, they have to accelerate their content, they have to make it more inflammatory. And so, when we're talking about like how do so many people get involved in this sort of thing, there's kind of a, a knock-on, almost uh, addictive, you know, quest for more and more. Information uh, that will solve every problem. And that tends towards, at least in this demographic, you know, the more provocative answers. You know, the virus can't be real. Vaccines are doubtful. Uh, George Soros wants to kill you for your blood. Uh, And so my colleagues, Derek Barris and Julian Walker, and I, we saw all of of this happen. Uh, We were in the yoga and wellness industries. Uh, for about a decade as cultural critics prior. And and we knew that something was up.
0: Because I I was saying earlier, as a kid, you know, I, I, I had I touched on that on that world. My mom was was, you know, was into yoga and we went to lots of health food stores. It always had a very altruistic bent to it back then. And it did never feel as if it were. You know, that it, it sort of drifted into, into into a strange extremism. I mean, comparing those who were, uh, you know, mandates, against, you know, comparing stuff to the Holocaust, for instance, which would have been unconscionable, you know, 30, 40 years ago within this world, all of a sudden became de rigueur. I, I guess attacks on it have made it even more insular in some ways.
3: I think so. And also, I think what you're describing about your mother's experience and my parents' experience is uh, a time in history in which alternative health, yoga, and wellness were not, had not yet been subjected to a kind of neoliberal process of being integrated into the way in which we think of health more generally. Right. So there's been a kind of industrialization process, but there's also been this way in which Yoga communities and wellness communities have seen themselves as withdrawn from politics or above the fray, or somehow that politics is a dirty business. It's really a demographic that views itself as apolitical. And that never really holds during a moment of social stress because any demagogue can come in and kind of seize a disenfranchised or apathetic political population and really bend it to their will.
0: Now, again, I, I'm all for people believing in what they want to believe and it makes, if it makes them feel better, fine. Just, you know, watch out and try not to shove other people around and respect other people's norms and so on. Uh, one thing that you pointed out, which I find interesting is not what, don't watch what they say, watch what they sell. That ultimately what it boils down to in many cases, it, it's a bit of a grift.
3: Right. And, you know, there are a lot of dynamics that go into that grift, and we identify a huge crossover between uh, the social influencer marketing and, you know, really cultic dynamics. We're talking about spaces that are completely unregulated, uh, and that's actually a feature of alternative health and wellness. So, you know, a first question to ask about, you know, what a person is saying is, you know, where did they get their authority? Who will hold them accountable when they mess up? You know, with Reiki people and yoga teachers and herbalists and people selling parasite cleanses and with life coaches, uh, the answer will be that the authority generally came from their own you know grandiosity maybe their own narcissism and and no one will really hold them accountable so you know if you can establish that you're looking into or you're interested in a completely unregulated economy it's really a buyer beware situation because the thing that sells the product is the charisma of that influencer it's not really the evidence that they can offer uh it's not really any kind of you know, proven solution stuff, uh, what it is, is is a kind of magic.
0: Matthew, I mean, when you look at this, I, again, as I was saying, I'm all for people finding comfort in, in, in alternative stuff, right? I mean, it's okay. People can believe what they want to believe. There's a line, though, when it becomes antisocial or abusive or, you know, Holocaust denying and so on, or anything that, that reeks of, of anti-Semitism or racism and all that stuff. How do you keep the good of, of that, and and try to get rid of the bad right now, because it feels like there's quite a bit of bad out there.
3: Well, I mean, the first thing that I would say is that, you know, people should try logging off, uh, touching grass, uh, and then really looking at the difference between what seems to be important on social media and what's actually important in the neighborhood. But beyond that, I think it's good to look really carefully at what public health and evidence-based medicine means to you as a citizen, as, you know, a family member, as part of a larger community, and what principles like mutual aid mean, uh, and how amazing something like the Canada Health Act is and what it really means when somebody like Premier Daniel Smith wants to dodge and weave around it and pull money out of, you know, the, the purse to give the citizens of Alberta an Uber app where they can order acupuncture. Because if you're attracted to alternative health, you have to ask whether that's a way in which you check out of the social project of science and democracy and the notion that we're really only healthy or sick together, which is how the principle of vaccination works. And in really all the best advice that we've heard over the three years that we've done the the podcast is that when you or when loved ones who have plunged neck deep into this material, uh, what we most need is a kind of stability in relationship. Because the thing that we can absolutely say about conspirituality is that it is hyper individualistic. It's a neoliberal and almost libertarian worldview. And so it can't really offer the things that Community relationships can. And so if we're talking to a friend or a family member or a partner, you know, we've really got things to bring to the table that this mixture of paranoia and promises can't bring. So, you know, I'd also say that it's important to recognize that whatever your friend or loved one believes. They have a good reason and a good incentive to believe it. Maybe they were neglected by the medical establishment. Maybe they were immiserated by a cruel economy. Uh, maybe they are survivors or uh, of or allies of survivors of sexual abuse, and their attempts to secure accountability have all failed. I think that's a big driving force behind QAnon, by the way. Mm-hmm. And we can empathize with all of that, and we can also, you know, work to help get people what they need because, you know, there's a really good reason that this stuff is not as popular in Canada as it is in the States. And that's because we actually have some semblance of social care here.
0: Yeah. And I, I look at, again, we've talked about QAnon on the show and how do you address someone who you think has sort of fallen under the spell of, of, of a conspiracy theory that doesn't make much sense if you don't understand even some of the language that flows around out there now if you're not in tune with what's happening as you are it's hard to make sense it's like code for even for someone like myself it sounds like code sometimes what daniel smith talks
3: you can't debate your friend or loved one who is attracted to QAnon about the facts around QAnon, because that's probably not why they're attracted. You know, the social psychologists say that the people who really get involved in conspiracy theories, they find community they find existential relief, they they feel that they've acquired some kind of knowledge that's going to protect them. Uh, And they also find a kind of epistemological or, or a way of thinking about the world that they feel is protective. And those things really sort of pour into the gaps left in the rest of our social relationships. Right. The person who is securely embedded within, you know, a family and a community, maybe in an extended family, uh, even a mainstream religion, I would say, uh, because there have been a lot of religious organizations that have provided a fair amount of buffering against the wildness of these online religions. The The more the social matrix of the person is healthy, the less vulnerable they will be. And so if you're part of that, the thing that you don't do is you don't say that you're crazy. You have you're totally delusional. You don't do the same thing to the person that the group has done to the person, which has kind of negged them into believing that uh, they have to run to the group for comfort. You know, it's best just to yeah. take them bowling or something like that.
0: I guess it's here with us to stay, though. I mean, this convergence of of wellness and spirituality, conspiracy online, the selling of supplements and so on, it feels like it's not going anywhere.
3: We wrote a book very quickly, uh, yeah. you know, to cover a, a emerging phenomenon. But I don't think it's a flash in the pan because two of the influencers we write about in the book um new age guru marianne williamson and anti-vax propagandist robert f kennedy jr are running for president currently in the states and they're running on some pretty dubious spiritual and pseudoscience ideas And Bobby is being supported by this guy named Charles Eisenstein, who's a fairly famous new age writer who at the start of the pandemic wrote a 9,000 word essay about how the virus presented an opportunity for spiritual transformation, but only if we rejected simple mitigation things like mask or social distancing, because if we did those things, we would be falling into a kind of unenlightened fear. So... If anything, I, I think the the very fringe, strange ideas that we've covered in our book are becoming more mainstream. And I don't think there's any real direct answer to that other than to double down on communicating the value, the basic value of public health, uh, universal health care, um, and you know, community aid.
0: Matthew Remsky, uh, it's a fascinating topic. Thank you so much. Thank you. For years, we talked about, um, for many, many months, we talked about COVID nonstop, of course. So I think a lot of us have kind of been COVIDed out and would rather not just hear about it anymore. Although I still see people getting it. Uh, A friend of mine got it a few weeks ago. I mean, you know, it feels like we've moved well beyond the pandemic, but COVID-19 is still out there, right? And the impacts of it are still out there. You know, there, there are more than a few people in my broader circle who have developed symptoms of long COVID, right? Um, So here we are uh, somewhere, you know, beyond the three-year mark at the beginning of the pandemic, well beyond it at this point. And uh, most people just don't wanna talk about it anymore. And and, and that one understands. In fact, I rarely talk about it in my day-to-day life anymore. That being said, it's still something that we should be paying attention to. It's not done with us. You know, the peak number of people hospitalized apparently with COVID this spring was higher than during the pre-vaccine period back in 2020. Uh, And there's a lot of long COVID out there. And we're just beginning to try to understand what the long-term impacts of COVID-19 really are. So I came across an interesting op-ed in the Globe and Mail over the weekend written by Dr. Elaine Chin, who had some really interesting takes or an interesting update on what exactly is happening out there with uh, COVID-19, specifically on the idea of of the lasting effects of it, that, you know, the symptoms of of long COVID, such as, you know, fatigue, neurological issues, uh, brain fog, and so forth, sleep problems, dizziness. You know, there are people out there, and it's not all down to COVID-19. I think there was a lot of mental uh, stresses as well involved with the pandemic. It was a very bad time. Let's just be frank about it. All the things that were, you know, being locked in at home, not being able to go outside, not being able to see your friends, all of it was a sacrifice that people made. Some people made it more gladly than others, but it was a very difficult time for all of us. It really was. And I think we've recognized it, but maybe not enough because, you know, life just kept speeding back up again. Here we are all, you know, sort of not talking about it anymore. But maybe we should talk about it just for one more segment this evening. Um, So, I invited Dr. Elaine Chin on to talk about what her thought is about the lasting impact of the pandemic, of COVID-19 specifically, as she's the founder of the Executive Health Center. Uh, The piece that she wrote is called We, is exerted. She has a new book out called We Are Not Okay, The Pandemic and Its Consequences. And Dr. Elaine Chin joins me now. Thanks for your time tonight.
7: Well, it's a pleasure to be back talking to you, Ben, now that the pandemic is really officially over.
0: Aha. And yet, the, the whole purpose of this book is is to acknowledge the, that fact, but also to recognize the kind of impact that it has had on us. What did you, Why did you feel this was the right time to bring this up?
7: There's two types of folks that we shouldn't forget, the ones who passed away. And this book is really about all those who are still alive, who are either experiencing complications from getting COVID, which we most of the time now call long COVID because we don't know what the causes are of all the various symptoms. And the mental health impact on everybody because we've all been traumatized in some shape or form. It's very easy to dismiss it and let's move on. But, you know, we always say if you don't deal with your baggage, it's going to come back to haunt you. So that's really what I'm saying. Let's do a self-audit. Let's do a social audit. And uh, figure out what's not right, fix it before it becomes kind of like a, a, a tumor growing in a psychological or physiological way.
0: Right. And you pointed out sort of by saying that a lot of people that you've spoken to of late have sort of said they're done with COVID. And your point was, sure, but COVID is still out there and it's still impacting us. In fact, you refer to millions of Canadians as walking wounded because of it. and that's And that's something really, I mean, that conjures up a lot of images, right?
7: Yes, and you know what's shocking to me, Ben, is that every time I would do a talk or an interview or now we've recently had an article in The Globe, I'm getting comments to say, thank you for bringing this up because I've been suffering or my family members have been suffering and even at a recent bank uh, event that I spoke to over a thousand people, Somebody came up to me and said, thank you. I thought I was losing my mind because I was a great sleeper. And now I wake up every two, three hours. I don't know. I can't get into any decent amount of sleep. I just keep waking up. So this is all long COVID. So there's a lot of people walking around, don't even know why they're not feeling right.
0: And this has been one of the the hard parts about this post-COVID era is that we don't know. We don't know what, what what has happened to people in general, although you go through a lot of detail about the different ways physiologically, particularly that, that COVID has impacted us. Uh, but we're still figuring out what, what's happened to us. And that's that's a scary place to be.
7: It is. And what I want people to do is if you don't know what's going on, you can't fix it, right? So let's have, I know we don't want to talk about it, but if we have something that's going on, I'm hoping that this book is going to trigger a little bit more conversation in balance.
0: That appears to be the problem, right? Not only do people not want to think about it anymore, they didn't want to talk about it anymore. Are you are you think? Are you feeling that people, people who are suffering from from long COVID, for instance, are reluctant now to talk about it because they feel like everyone else has just started to move on?
7: You know what? I uh, there was an interview I did with another reporter, and we were talking about the lessons learned from this pandemic. That people who were not healthy had higher complications, and this individual literally said. Are you shaming obese people? We are, in some essence, uh, feeling guilty that we are sick with COVID. Like somehow we're weak and we got COVID. And so we shouldn't tell people that we got COVID and we were one of the ones that didn't recover. It's like a closet COVID sufferer. And that's what I'm learning the last two weeks talking about this book and it coming out and people coming up to me telling me these stories or typing me a story or texting to me.
0: In it, you go through a lot of the physiological uh, impacts that COVID has had as, as far as you've been able to unearth. What are some of those? Because I feel like one of the problems we're having is that we're having trouble defining what a symptom of COVID is. We know that we were one way before the pandemic, and perhaps we feel slightly different after the pandemic, but we don't know what to attribute it to. And the symptoms... And the impact seem to be different depending on the person.
7: Well, let's start off with the presumed uh, symptoms physically. So people will say, well, coughing and the shortness of breath. That's actually not the most common symptom. The most common symptom is fatigue, brain fog. Now, if you have grotesque brain fog and grotesque fatigue, you'll know it. But you're just not feeling right. And the other things that are happening that I am, as a mom, would say to you, rashes. Irritable bowel syndrome, because remember some of the people with COVID had awful diarrhea. Mm-hmm. And so it all it impacts every part of our body, different organs. And the list goes on aches and pains, arthritis, uh itises is what I would call it. Mm-hmm. And from the mental health perspective, aside from what we just talked about with sleeping disorders, is the panic, anxiety, depression. Now, what's most scary to me that wasn't in the book, but it was in the op-ed because it was brand new data is that we've discovered residual protein, spike protein in people's brains who have passed away. And they examined their brain not because they had COVID, but because of a diet of something and they just stained it and discovered COVID spike protein residuals in our brain, whether we had mild or severe COVID. Now, that is extremely freaky to me. If you had a piece of glass on your foot and you kept walking on it, you would know it hurts and it would be inflamed. So something else is going on when people continually have symptoms. And the trouble now is how do we get rid of this little piece of spike protein in our brain? You know, when it's a piece of glass in our foot, we just pick it up how
0: do we then how then how do we have this conversation because some of us don't really know what's wrong right and maybe we think we're just sort of being you know i, I don't know you know you, you kind of forget what it was it's like when you when you're sick and you get better again you forget what it was like before so right. a lot of us sort of suffer from not being remembering what it was once what we were what kind of shape we were in 3 years ago
7: wait so the people in the middle I would say to you that if you have this chronic va- rash, which, uh, trust me, as a mom, I know this because I sent my son to three or four dermatologists. They go, I don't know, it's autoimmune. Well, thank you very much. And then we had to deal with it. And this is how I'm going to say we're going to deal with it. So if we know that we've got an itis, which is an inflammation, right? That's really what this COVID virus does, right? The, that it causes an inflammation, whether it's your gut, um, your joints, or your skin, just to keep it simple to your brain. High inflammation is aggravated by high blood sugars, poor sleep, lack of exercise, insufficient anti-inflammatories, which means omega fatty acids, and insufficient amounts of fiber to help the gut biome recover. So the second half of my book is about recovering and learning our lessons that if we've got an itis, just like if you had lupus or you have IBS, I would tell you, to make sure that you stay away from things that inflame you. Like, please don't eat, drink three, four glasses of coffee. Please don't have one or two alcoholic beverages every couple of days. Do not eat fried foods. Try not to eat red meat every other day or barbecue foods. Truly eat more vegetables, maybe a little bit cooked so that it's not so hard to digest. Have healthy fruits. Eat more fish So and get more sleep and you have more exercise. And those things sound really, really boring, but how many of us do them really well?
0: Dr. Elaine Chin is founder of the Executive Health Center. Her book is called We Are Not Okay, The Pandemic and Its Consequences. We've been discussing its consequences. And for many of us, I think it's different. I mean, some of us um, contracted COVID, as I think most of us did at some point, and don't feel any different perhaps than we did before, but many people do. Dr. Chin, where to now? Because I think the point of the book was to was to both guide, but also to spark a conversation. Uh, how should we embark? Where should we go from here? Because clearly what you're saying is we can't just put COVID in the rearview mirror because it's still here.
7: Yeah, so we just, uh, you know, before the the break, we talked about some physical things you can do, and we talked a lot of about physical. Let's talk about the emotional health part. So we know that during this pandemic, there was a lot of isolation, more so in on Ontario than anywhere in the world, apparently. Uh, that was the data we were forced to learn how to live differently perhaps even on our own with very few social networks and now we have a new way of working which is a hybrid workforce wherever possible so our social networks have completely shrunken and this is a very important support network if you think about it why not just do a zoom or let's do facetime but every time we go out go to a party and we finally get dressed up and go to an event. We go, wow, that was a lot of fun. So my first thing to everybody is to get back out there and do some socialization and be part of the social fabric. Does that make sense to you, Ben? Like, Absolutely. are you been isolated with
0: the radio? Well, yeah, well, uh, yes, indeed. But I do try to get out now that the weather's good and, you know, those festivals are open again. And it's amazing yeah. how many people have, have – it's amazing how much people enjoy being out and together again. I, I suppose if you boil it down, what you're saying is that the pandemic has, has – if we ignored the warning signs of not eating well, not sleeping well, not socializing enough, all those things that we sort of took for granted before – that the pandemic was a wake-up call, that, that, that now that it's out there amongst us, it's, it, there's even more impetus on treating yourself yourself right physically and mentally.
7: Right. Absolutely. And then the other piece is if we all accept that we've all been micro-traumatized, whether we were locked in, locked down, or, or the other extreme lost people that you loved, right, or you're still experiencing symptoms or people in your home is, is that there's usually a cycle of grief recovery, And I do believe that some people are stuck or they're cycling in and out of it because when we first have a trauma, we're in shock and then we're in denial. And then some people are stuck in what we call the bargaining phase. And it's like, you know what, I'm just going to have this glass of wine or I'm just going to do more cannabis or worse still for a lot of young men is the drug addiction that's going on Mm -hmm. in epidemic forms. Then if you can't get out of that, then sometimes depression and anxiety happens. So in those two buckets, where we already had a shortage of healthcare professionals to keep an eye and support individuals, we're now in a crisis of helping people get through it. So part of it is instead of watching uh, those people who you know who are cycling in and out, that in lieu of getting them help, you need to be part of that solution to try to uh, coax them to get into healthier habits to go go for go for a long hike go and camp. so just to get out of that routine of whatever is societal's I would call temptations that are negative into nature and it helps with your mental health if you get outside.
0: I suppose the title of the book says it all, right? We have to admit that um, that for many we are not okay, not yet. <laughs>
7: Yes. And I'm hoping that after you read it, it prompts you and your family and your loved ones and your friends to say, so how are we going to get to become more okay? And there are ways to do it.
0: Well, Dr. Chin, thank you so much, as always.
7: Pleasure to be with you, Beth. 2023
0: marks 100 years since the birth of one of Canada's most renowned artists. uh, The painter, sculptor and engraver Jean-Paul Riopelle was born in Montreal. On October 7th, 1923, he started his work there, studied there in the 40s before spending nearly 40 years in France, including being part of the the Surrealist movement. He came back to Canada after that. Um, He's had, I mean, his work is everywhere, uh, including... We don't want to put too much stock in this, but um, in auction success, but in 2017, his painting Vanzunar, The Wind of the North, sold at the Heffel Fine Art Auction House uh, Spring Auction for $7.4 million. That's the second highest price to date for a Canadian work of art. He was famous for saying, when I hesitate, I do not paint, and when I paint, I do not hesitate. If you're familiar with Riopelle's work, sometimes it it looks like someone just threw a bunch of painting on the wall right that's kind of what it was but if you look at it more closely you could tell that there was all sorts of uh, layers and and depth going on and a lot of his painting was a bit like sculpting he was uh, quite an impressive guy obviously growing up in Montreal I've heard of him because he was a huge big deal in Quebec um but again, this is the 100 year anniversary of his birth. And so there are events going on right across the country to celebrate this. And uh, the commemorations include artists from sea to sea to sea, I mean, literally from St. John's right out here to Victoria, right up north to Nunavut, uh, participating in. Different ways of celebrating, not just his art, but also his spirit. He was a bit of an enfante, a bit of a, a rebel, someone who you know had his opinions about politics, about uh, you know about about uh, social justice and so on. So, a hundred years later, there is kind of still a place for him, although he is very much of his time. One of the projects that's being worked on is actually already been installed. It's already up. It's spectacular. There's this tourist attraction out here on Vancouver Island called the Malahat Skywalk. It's this giant. Uh, skywalk built in the trees up north of, uh, or just past outside of Victoria, um, and they've decided to install works of sort of works inspired by riopel there. The catch is um, that these were created with the help of artificial intelligence by students uh, across Vancouver Island. So in some ways, it's it's a really modern take on someone considering that it's it's the centenary so kind of updating it to 19 from 1923 to 2023 uh the bc artists who were involved in this particular project are juan ramirez and laura beth mcdonald um and they join me now juan and laura beth thank you so much for your time tonight
8: thank you for having us glad to be here
3: juan
0: tell me a bit about where this how this all began how did you get involved in this project
8: uh, oh, that's a great question. So I think last year the the Riopel Foundation put a call for artists in order to celebrate the 100th anniversary of uh, jean Paul Riopel. And like many Canadians were like who is Jean Paul Riopel right And with you know the more we started learning about him, so he's a renowned Canadian artist well known across the world, one of the few Canadian artists at the MoMA in New York, we we were like shocked that we didn't know about him before um so the more we learned about his style his rebellious attitudes uh, the more in love we fell and more in love we fell with him and we were really thinking how can we do something for this project we really wanted to get involved and it was all across canada it was for every different province that really wanted to highlight the nature of those specific provinces we started looking at how his art would translate 100 years after his birth. And right. I think that was kind of our angle. And the technology of the current times is AI. And one thing he he always talked about is painting without thinking. And we made the connection. that, so, well, that's kind of how AI works. You know, it paints without really thinking. It just kind of generates these images based on input, text input that people are putting in. How can we use that technology and reimagine his style 100 years after his birth?
0: Yeah, he he said, when I hesitate, I do not paint. When I paint, I do not hesitate. That was sort of his famous famous line. Uh, Laura Beth, was it the same for you? Or did you know much about Jean-Paul Riopelle going in? Or was this something you really, uh, was a bit of a learning experience for you as well?
6: Okay, so embarrassingly enough, I had a reappeld coffee table book, <laughs> like many, many years ago. I have a degree in art history, and I must have picked this thing up somewhere. So the name was familiar to me. um, but it's been so lovely getting to know more about his biography and his artwork through the program, Juan and I have actually worked on a couple projects together. We started an art collective in 2020. And so we prioritize projects that work at the intersection of art and technology. And this was just another really great opportunity to blend those things together in a bit of an unusual and unexpected way and get involved in this 10 the wide project.
7: Uh,
0: one, I understand you you brought this to uh, to young to kids, um, I mean, the kids, students, to try to get them involved in it. How did that work?
8: Yeah, so part of the part of the program's goal was to involve the communities, and one of the things that Laura Beth and I have always worked towards is ensuring that the, the technology, the new technology, is available to everybody. How can we make the technology more accessible to more people? So we devised this workshop where we would go to high schools, we work with artists, and we taught them about the technology, how AI ge- image generators work. We taught them how we could use it to reimagine uh, a specific artist's uh, style using this technology. And it was a great arc to see them go from not knowing anything about this technology to using it to really get creative. And we were always impressed by the prompts that they were creating after, you know, a couple of hours of working with us. That really understood how to talk to this machine in order to get what they wanted. So that's that's how that came about.
0: Laura how did the how did students in 2023 react to you know Riopel was a really interesting interesting guy sort of an enfant terrible they would call him uh, how did students today react to the way he was he was very much of his time though of course as well
6: yeah I think really positively the students you know they're young their brains are like sponges they pick up whether it's you know, teaching about abstract expressionism or AI, like they, they just kind of instantly got it. And I think just like Juan and myself, they made the connections between Riapel's rebellion in uh, the seventies and, and what we're doing today. So it, it happened really quickly. And like Juan mentioned, they just came up with these really creative ideas that you can, you can see throughout the show
0: uh well tell me tell me a bit about their prompts so so, in other words, you were sort of do you tell AI you know do something in the style of Riopel? Here are some mm-hmm. prompts about how to what we'd like to see you do with that is that is that how it works?
8: Yeah, so we start a little bit you know before that we we really wanted to understand how to talk to this machine because it's not as i mean it is as simple as typing something in, but in order to really get it to do what you want it to do, you have to be very specific and the example that I always give is you can ask it to give you a painting or a picture of a fork on a plate because it's right. seen millions of images of forks and plates. But if you ask it to do a plate on a fork, it struggles with that concept because it hasn't seen that. So you, in a way, you have to almost trick it into to give you the things that you want. Uh, another thing was uh, I was trying to get a full body person to be generated and I couldn't get a full body person. I was really struggling with that. So I went to the forums and I was asking around. It's a really supportive community. And what they told me is, oh, just foot with shoes. Ah. And I was like, oh, with shoes. Now the AI has to draw me a full body person because I put with shoes. So there's these little tricks that you learn as you're kind of learning about prompt engineering as they call it. So what we did is we would show them a picture and we would say, let's try to break down this picture visually, mm-hmm. the background, which way it's facing, what type of medium it is. And let's see if we can actually come up with a prompt that will trigger the AI to regenerate this exact image. So we see that after many iterations of doing this exercise, we got very, very close to the initial image that we have given the students. So we really wanted to make sure that they understood how this machine works and what it can do and what it cannot do yet. So that's that's how we did it.
0: Uh, Laura, Beth, I understand, too, you you brought in, I mean, you know, uh, you brought in indigenous kids as well. So you wanted to get a lot of different perspectives on Rio a 100 years later and also a reflection of the community that you live in as well.
6: Yeah, absolutely. That's something that Juan and I are so passionate about. We just believe that there need to be more voices in this art and tech sector. We previously ran a program all about NFTs, which was also a little bit controversial. We took... 11 community-based artists from all different ages, all walks of life. And we brought them together to learn all about the blockchain and non-fungible tokens. Because I think, you know, the future is here. It's now. And these are really cutting-edge technologies. And we just need... Such creativity and diversity to be thinking about the challenges, the problems, the opportunities. So, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Ben, we had the we had the pleasure of going up to Port McNeil. This was a really special trip for Juan wow. and I, and we worked with KwaKwaKwa Indigenous Youth. And as Juan just explained about the prompt engineering, it was really awesome to see them go through that process because the initial prompts that they put in. They weren't really satisfied with the result. It wasn't reflective of how they wanted their piece to look. They were trying to incorporate some of their traditions and culture, and it just wasn't coming out correct. So they went through that iterative process of changing the language You know, modifying, maybe not using Coast Salish, but Indigenous or Native American and playing around with those word combinations to get something that they felt really reflected themselves and the spirit of Ria So that was a really cool process. And I know Juan and I are both just really excited to have more people participating in these conversations.
0: For listeners who don't know Vancouver Island, uh, if Victoria is down at the bottom on the southern tip, Port McNeill's up at the top, sort of the top right-hand side, about 400 to 60 kilometers north of Victoria, about as far as you can go between two places on this on this island. Uh, one, the final product, uh, the, the, you finished. They are installed, yeah. as far as I understand, on what is the Malahat yeah. Skywalk, which is a tree walk in uh, just outside of Victoria, really spectacular gallery. I can't imagine a more amazing gallery. Uh, What was the final product like and did the students like what they came up with?
8: So the students haven't seen it yet, Ah. Uh, you know, because it is the end of the year. So some of the students are going to come back in July and we'll do a private tour with them when, when that happens. Uh, So sadly they haven't seen the final product yet, although they have seen some of the pictures. Uh, So there's seven different artworks all around the Malahat Skywalk, really. And, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do was to embed this big pieces they're they're four by eight feet or eight by eight feet installed in in the malahat skywalk and we wanted to embed them into the nature of vancouver island and there's no better place that really highlights that like the malahat skywalk so those pieces look like they're floating they are installed they're a great job installing them and i'm very happy with the final product and i hope a lot of people come to see them
0: yeah, I mean I remember Riopel paintings as being just like a just a lot of colors thrown onto a canvas. That's my memory of it. Uh, what did you come up with in in terms of in terms of what do these ones look I know people haven't all seen them yet and it's not officially open. Yeah. But Laura Beth what, what do they look like? Do they look like those Riepel paintings of my imagination? You
6: mm-hmm. know, there's some references and if you're if you are very familiar with his work, you're going to see the references. Um, and that's where when we put in the prompt, you know, we're using the language like inspired by Jean-Paul Riopelle or right. in the style of Jean-Paul Riopelle. Our goal wasn't to mimic his work necessarily, but it was to take those color palettes and the texture and just his pieces are so, so dynamic and pull that into the works. And you can you can absolutely see that. Um, the first piece that you encounter when you get to the skywalk, there are two different images of an arbutus tree. One of them is going to be that more reappel style, that, you know, kind of orange and yellow color palette that, that really shows up in his work a lot. And then the image facing it is like, As if the aliens came down and designed this tree with Ria Pell. So a lot of the pieces are really in conversation with one another. They're very playful. um, But they also touch on, you know, some heavy topics and some serious stuff. So uh, they turned out fantastic. And the Skywalk is just such a unique venue. I I can't think of a, a better location.
0: Because one, was, was was political. I mean, he was. He wasn't afraid to confront mm-hmm. uh, the issues of his day as well that were seen as issues of injustice and equality and so on. Uh, and you've tried to include some of that as well.
8: Yeah, I mean, just using the AI by itself is, uh, you know, can be a big of a controversy uh, nowadays. So uh, we were actually inspired by his rebellion. We said, like, well, you know, maybe he would be okay with this, or maybe he wouldn't be. I don't know how he would feel about it, but I think he would definitely try to explore this new avenue of creativity. And we try to be very transparent that we are using AI. When you have the, you see the info signs right next to each image, we actually put the exact prompt that was used by the students, and. The whole idea was to put humans ahead of AI with this project, to create a project where people would collaborate with one another. And so what we did is the students would actually put up their prompts and we use an online system for them to vote on the ones that they would like it. And then we would generate those images. Then we would revise them and say, okay, this is what you guys want. Do we want to do another round with the same prompt? Maybe change this over here, put that over there. Let's see what we get now. Uh, And there's different things that you can do with AI where you can apply weights to certain words. So they uh, put more preference on those specific words over other ones than you're saying prompts. So students were really kind of trying to say, I want a cat. I want this here. What happens if we do this? And sometimes they will come up with things that we would never imagine them to use. And one of the, one of the paintings was the prompt was Hot Wheels. And we're wow. like, "Oh, this is perfect!" I mean, Rio Pell was known for his love of fast cars, so the Hot Wheels is one of the one of the paintings that we actually generated using artificial intelligence in his style. Well,
0: it sounds like a fasc- fascinating result. I think it opens to the public on June the twentieth, right? I mean, they're installed already, but it opens uh, in the next in the next officially few years. open, yeah. Uh, you know, I think Rio Pell would have been fine with the AI. He was always he was always he was always innovating. Uh, Juan and Laura Beth, thank you so much for your time on this.
8: Thank you, appreciate it.
6: Thank you.